we can grab a seat. It's now time for Marvin's exposure, and I'm really worried about the next level for him. So, as you can see, we are here in the beautiful Golden Gate Dog Park. You don't go to parks, do you? Mm-mm. Why not? No. Why? Dog, they're dog friendly. Well, Beaches, that sounds parks. like a good thing. To you, not to me. Okay. This exposure is going to bring up a lot of pain and memories from the past. Oh, hell no. Oh. Hey, hey. Hey, hey, Marvin, Marvin, stay with me. This pit bull puppy comes on a corner. My heart, like, almost jumped out of my body. Stay with me. Stay with me. You're okay. You're okay. Stay with me. Let's do this together. You're good. I think you should pet the dog. See, no, he's looking at me. No. Marvin, come on, Marvin. Think of your girls. Think of your girls. Think of your girls. (laughs) <laughs> I'm really a coward. You're not a coward. You are not a coward. You are a strong person. And then the dog bit him. Uh, <laughs> nah, just kidding. Uh, but man, when we see something like that, right, a lot of questions are brought to light. Right? A lot of uh, wonderings and concerns. Uh, we start to think, well, you know, why, why is he so scared of that puppy, right? Like, why does he have a giant face tattoo <laughs> right there, smack dab on his this? Uh, why is he more afraid of that puppy than he is of walking into future job interviews with that face tattoo, right? Like, where... Where is that fear coming from? It seems to be misplaced, right? And the reality is what it also brings to light is the fact that we sometimes find people, we find ourselves even, in moments, in times where we have a misplaced fear in a person or in a place or in a situation, in a conversation, right? We've all found ourselves with misplaced fear about something or, uh, or something else, right? We've had a fear about having that conversation with that person, or we've had a fear about going to that place to do that thing. We've had a fear about about going to this school or going to that job. And, and we go there and we do those things and suddenly we find, wow, that fear was unwarranted, right? It was irrational. It was misplaced. My wife, Susan, is deathly afraid of snakes. Just all snakes, anywhere, anytime, on TV. Like she can't look at snakes on TV because it's so, it just, she's afraid of it. I am personally super scared of middle schoolers, right? Like if I see them anytime, place, I just... I protect myself and I run. Like, that's how I engage. I have this fear. We have an irrational fear of different things. And strangely enough, we as believers, we as Christians often find ourselves, even though we're calling ourselves Christians, even though we're we're calling ourselves children of God, we find ourselves afraid of God. We find ourselves afraid to approach the Lord for one reason or another. And so in that moment, we know we shouldn't be afraid, right? On some level, we think like, no, this is, this is wrong. This is irrational. And we want to find a solution, right? We want to fix that problem. And yet sometimes we just can't. We just can't get rid of that fear. And then what? What do we do when we find that fear in our hearts? When we find that fear in our minds as we think about the Lord or think of talking to the Lord or approaching the Lord, what do we do with that fear? All semester, we're walking through the book of Hebrews and we're looking at 
basically the main point of Hebrews, the main topic is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And as we walk through this, we're keeping in mind that there, we live in a world, we live in a society, in a culture that tells us day in and day out that we deserve the best. And so we want to be the best. We want to have the best. We want to know what's best. And yet what Hebrews tells us is that no matter what anyone thinks or says or does, that Jesus is better. He's better. We've seen that he's better than our failures. We've seen that he's better than our idols. We've seen that he's better than the identities that we create. We see that he's better than, than historical figures like Isaac, than Moses. And this morning, we're in chapter 5, where the author of Hebrews explains to us that Jesus is better than those fears that we find ourselves with. We're in chapter 5, where the author goes into and begins to describe Christ's role as our high priest as our representative before God. And as he's describing Christ's role as a high priest, he tells us that that allows us to approach God with confidence, that because of Christ's standing, because of his sympathy, and because of his sacrifice, we have been given the right and the confidence to approach the Lord anytime, any day, any moment, with any concern. Jesus is better than our fears. He is. The author wraps up chapter 4, explaining that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I mean, this is Christianity in three verses. This is it. This is what we profess. This is what we claim. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other major world religion. The fact that we believe, that we confess, that we have a great high priest, that we have Jesus, who we can grab a hold of, who we can proclaim, who we can worship, a Jesus Christ, a God who mended the relationship. He mended, filled the gap between us and him to allow us to have a relationship with him. Right? We, we, we are the only religion, we're the only people that claim that our relationship with God is fixed solely because he chose to fix it. Every other group, every other religion will say, you need to do certain things, you need to say certain things, you need to think certain things. And when you do those, you can start to kind of bridge that gap. You can start to kind of approach God. And maybe you'll get to the point where you can be saved or you can receive reward or you can reach nirvana or whatever it is. Christianity alone says, no, there is nothing I can do. Instead, I rely entirely on my great high priest. I rely entirely on the work of Jesus Christ. And because of his work, I am now able to draw near to the Lord. Why? Because he has given me both mercy and grace. In other words, he has given me mercy, which means that I have been spared the punishment that I deserved. He does not give me the negative, the, the punishment that I do deserve. And he gives me grace in that he gives me the good things, the blessings that I don't deserve. This is Christianity. That we all find ourselves sinners, broken beyond repair, who can't do anything, can't say anything, to fix what's within us, to fix the world around us, to fix the relationship that's been torn between us and the Lord. And yet Jesus Christ gives us mercy. He gives us grace. 
for all those who confess his name, for all of those who put their faith, their trust in him. This is what we believe. This is what we profess. And honestly, this is something that a lot of us say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's where I am, right? Most of us in this room will, would say that we are Christians. Most of us in this room would affirm these claims. We'd say, yes, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely what I believe. And yet, we still find ourselves unable to draw near with confidence. We still find ourselves doubting that mercy, doubting that grace. Why? And what can Christ do about it? Because the author knows that he says, I mean, he lays this out, and he knows that we still have issues with it. And so in his grace, in the Lord's divine authorship, he lets us know, look, we don't need to be afraid of those things. Like We can know these things to be true because of Jesus Christ, because of the role that he has as high priest. And when we look at his role, we'll notice there are three distinct parts of his role as high priest that allows us to draw near with confidence, that allows us to renew our faith in that statement. He has a standing that is above all others. Right? In, in chapter 5, verse 1, he begins to compare basically human priests or ministers or pastors, however you want to call them, Human priests with Christ, the perfect divine priest. And so he says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He's just explaining, right? You know, you Israelites, remember when we're thinking about the original context of this letter, the audience are Jewish believers under persecution. And so he's saying to these Jewish believers, you remember the high priest, right? That's a long uh, historical tradition within Jewish culture, within Judaism. They have a high priest. He says every single high priest is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. That's the job of a priest. You're the go-between. You're the middleman between God and his people. And he says, and every single one of them is appointed. In other words, his authority comes from an outside source. And when you're appointed in that way, it doesn't only guarantee your authority with Christ, it also guarantees his ability. When he is appointed as our high priest, he is given the authority and the ability to be our high priest. The author explains in verse 4, starts talking about Christ specifically. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's crucial that we understand that Christ's authority was given to him. It was appointed to him. Why? Because that's the sign of true authority. When you go by a nickname, you can't just come up with your own nickname, right? You can't just decide, I'm cinnamon buns now. <laughs> you have to do something to earn that nickname. That's very strange, and I'm sorry that I used that as an example. <laughs> you have to somehow exemplify cinnamon buns in your life, and then someone else will then give you the name, right? It has to be appointed to you. You can't just decide, oh yeah, I'm going to be Bonesaw now. Like that's, that's who I am. Everybody calls me Bonesaw because, I don't know. Like, you just, you can't do that. And in the same way, Christ did not exalt himself. He was given, he was appointed to this. To prove this point, the author quotes Psalm 2. 
Psalm 2, which is known as a messianic psalm. And in fact, the author used it a few chapters ago to describe the deity of Christ, right? He used this to explain Christ is the son of God, not literally meaning that God is his father and he has a mom and that kind of stuff, but he is the, the direct descendant of the, or he is the heir to all that the Lord has done, the, all the Lord that has accomplished. Christ is God, right? That's what this means. You are my son. You are God. We are of the same nature. If you have seen the son, you have seen the father. They're one and the same. So he uses it for deity, to prove deity, but yet now he's using it to prove priesthood. Why? How? The key is where he's talking about this, this idea of today I have begotten you. We hear this and we're like, okay, I guess that's like when Christ was sent to the world or maybe when he was baptized, right? God was like, this is him. Or, or maybe when he was born right in Bethlehem. And yet what we find is that Paul uses this exact verse in Acts chapter 13, and he uses it in a sermon to describe that Christ was begotten, that he was given into, in other words, he was placed into, he was brought into a new role, not when he was born or not when he was baptized, but when he was resurrected, when he was delivered out of death. That's the moment that's being described right here in Psalm 2. When Christ rose from the dead three days after being murdered and buried on our behalf, When he rose from the dead, the Lord brought him into a new position. He had a new role as our mediator, as our representative, as our high priest. He says, this is something that has been given to Christ, appointed to him. He has an authority in his priesthood, but it's more than that. He also has ability. Because as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you were a Jewish believer in the early 60s AD, you'd hear Melchizedek, you'd be like, oh, yeah, big Mel, 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 right? Like, you'd be excited because Melchizedek was a big deal. We've heard him uh, described earlier in the book. We're going to see him later. We're actually going to spend a week talking about him because this guy is legit, too legit to quit. Like, he's too great. And so when we see this, the author is displaying. He's not just saying like, oh, you're kind of like that guy. He's saying you are a great high priest, You have not only the authority, but you have the ability. You can be a good, perfect high priest. Because the Jewish believers of that time, they knew what it looked like to have a bad priest. We, as believers, we know what it looks like to have a bad priest or pastor or minister or youth guy, whatever. We've seen that. And we've seen the destruction that can be brought about by someone who claims to be a representative for us to the Lord. And yet abuses that power. Or, or just leaves it sitting there. We've seen the destruction caused by that. And some of us have been burned by that. And I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But Christ isn't like that. Christ is better. He not only has the authority, he has the ability to be a good priest. He's not like the bad priest that the Jewish believers would then think of. They would think back uh, to Numbers. They would think back to Numbers 16 and think of a guy named Korah who goes to Moses, says, oh, I think I should be the priest. Who, who made you an Aaron priest? Like, it should be me. And so then Moses is like, all right, we'll show up tomorrow and we'll all offer offerings to the Lord. We'll see what the Lord says about that. Of course, like, yeah, okay. And so him and his people, they all show up. And sure enough, as soon as they, off, they put up their offerings, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them. And they perished from the midst of the assembly. They were terrible priests. These men had neither the authority. They certainly did not have the ability. 
just in attacking Moses and Aaron, they proved themselves to be irresponsible with that position. And so the Lord punishes them. There's incredible destruction. And what I love is, so this is happening, right? So the earth just opened, which is crazy. They fell into it, which is also crazy. It closes up over them. Again, we're just like, the crazy notch is just so high right now. So then other people around them are like, oh, snap. And they were around them. They fled at their cry. And they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And then fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 200 men offering the incense. 250 men offering the incense. See, this is amazing because these guys are like, oh, man, I don't want to get swallowed up by the ground. And so they run. They're like, oh, that was close. And then all of a sudden fire, they're just gone. And I love it. It's super dark, but hilarious, right? And we see this. Where the Lord steps in. The Korah was so bad that God opened the earth to swallow them whole. The people that like were able to like whoop, whoop, whoop. And then they're like, <laughs> I got, they're dead. They're gone. Every single one of them obliterated. Why? Because they were terrible priests. There was destruction that came about. There was a punishment that came. And yet Christ, I mean, he's not like that. He's after the order of Melchizedek. He has the authority to be our priest. He also has the ability to be our priest. So why are we afraid to trust Christ? Why? Some of us just can't come to that point to even believe that he really was God, to really believe that he could really save us or whatever it is. Some of us have never put our trust in Christ on any level ever. Please hear me when I tell you that he has the right to be trusted. He has the authority. He has the ability to mend that relationship that you know is broken between yourself and the Lord. And some of us, we've put our trust in Christ and yet we still find ourselves, even though we had that moment at VBS or in middle school or whatever it was, man, we still find ourselves drawn back. We're like, I don't know. I just, I don't know. He has the authority. He has the ability to be our priest. He's worthy of our trust. But it's more than that. It's more than just his standing. He's not just this great high priest who's up there in his cloudy ivory tower. It's not only his standing, it's also that he has a sympathy. His sympathy is, is better. We see that he can deal, this is describing the human priest. He says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. All right, so again, the author is describing a human uh, priest's He says, those human priests, they're able to relate to their people. Why? Because they're in the same spot, right? They're also weak. They're beset with weakness. And so they're able to deal gently with those people. And just like those human priests, Christ himself is able to be loving and gracious in his representation of us. He's ready to deal gently with us. Which there's some level in us, there's, there's one kind of piece, though, that, that rubs us the wrong way. That always kind of bothered me when I would hear this and I'd be told this. I was like, okay. But here's the thing. Christ never sinned, right? He was perfect. And so because he never sinned, can he really relate? Right? That was something that always kind of nagged at me, always kind of held me back. I, thought, I don't know if he could really relate that well, right? Because he's never, true, he's never sinned the way that I have. So has he really been in the same spot as me? I just, I couldn't quite come to grips with that. But what's beautiful, what the author is about to explain is that Christ's perfection actually allows him to relate better than anyone else. His perfection allows him to relate 
in a way that's better than those of us who are fellow sinners. His perfection allows him to listen and love to an extent that we simply can't because sin, man, it makes us selfish. It hardens our hearts. It blinds us to other people's problems. It makes us judgmental when we need to be sympathetic. So try as we might, man, we can't always actually have a perfect sympathy for the problems for the people around us. That's why a lot of the times when your friend is telling you about their situation or their issue or this problem that they're having, you're spending a lot of that time trying to mentally come up with like the best way to tell your story about when you were in a really similar situation and it was like really crazy and whatever. Or maybe you're thinking about uh, how simple the solution is to their problem. And you're just like, oh my gosh, you just need to talk to him or you need to talk to her. You just need to get a fire extinguisher and go... (laughs) Go to the car and put it out. Like you just, you have in your mind, it's so simple, right? You have these moments and you're spending that time as they're explaining, they're spilling their heart and their feelings and their problems. And you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But immensely you're somewhere else, right? You're coming up with these other solutions and you can't wait to share them if they would just, just shut it date, stop it, right? Like if they would just stop talking, you can pour out your wisdom like oil upon their heads, and they would be forever grateful and praise your name and wave palm branches. Like you want that moment to happen. Why? Because we are sinful. Because sure, we can sympathize in some level, but the reality is that the sin in our lives, it stops us from being truly sympathetic. It stops us from being truly loving, truly listening to those people in those moments. But Christ was perfect. His perfection allows him to take that sympathy to another level. That's why when we see him described in verse 7 by the author, he says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers, supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now right here, uh, scholars will go one of two different ways. They'll say that the author is describing either Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was crucified, right before he was tried and crucified on the cross. He had a moment in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, where he's praying to the Lord. Uh, It's very powerful. He begins to sweat blood because he's just so intent, right? That could be what's described. Other scholars will say, well, no, this seems to be uh, kind of very similar. The language, it seems to parallel uh, the Greek in Psalm 22, which is a psalm that's describing the suffering on the cross. But either way, right, whether this is describing uh, his cries and tears in the garden, whether it's describing his cries and tears on the cross. Either way, what we see is that Christ suffered. We see that he was where we were, but more than that, he was prayed to be saved from death. Now, did he pray to avoid death? Well, no, that doesn't make sense. Why? Because he was hurt. Because those prayers were answered. He wasn't praying that God would just allow him to not die. When we see this in the Greek, from death, that wording, that the, the words used right there, it doesn't always describe like you are avoiding it or, or you're somehow uh, you know, skirting around it. Instead, this is the idea of being saved out of death. Same way that I come from my house. I go out of my house. I don't come away from my, around my house Uh, that it broke down. But we see that Christ was praying for what? He was praying that he would be saved out of death. In other words, he was praying for the resurrection and he was heard. 
he rose three days later. So in other words, Christ suffered to the extent that we suffer and then suffered even more, right? His perfection lasted, his ability to resist temptation lasted through everything that the world could throw at him, through everything that Satan could throw at him, to the point of death. And then even then, he came out of death. He was saved out of death. In other words, he has been where we've been. He's been where we are and then some. He's gone even further in terms of suffering, in terms of temptation. If you're training for a 10K, you don't want to come get sympathy from me. Because if you are training for any sort of, I don't know, 10K, 5K, whatever it is, you come to me and you're like, man, it's really tough. Like I've been running. I would only really be able to offer, I would say, well, hey, like I walked really briskly to my car the other day. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm still a little emotionally shaken up, but I think I'm getting getting better, right? That's as far as I've gone. Like that's as kind of as much as I can offer you. Instead, you're going to want to talk to one of my friends uh, who has competed in many different uh, marathons, right? 26 whatever miles, 0.2, whatever the bumper stickers say. They're like, whatever. So we see... That's what you want to talk. You want to talk to my friend that's done that. You want to talk to my friend, uh, the same guy who's competed in Olympic triathlons, which means that you run a marathon after you already like swam across the ocean and biked to the moon. Like that's what an Olympic level triathlon is. It's insane. It takes like 20 days or something. So you want to talk to that guy. Why? Because he's been where you are and then some, right? We see that there is a greater sympathy to be found in someone who has gone even further than we were able to go. And that's what Christ has done. Christ has gone further than we could ever hope to go. His perfection allows him to be even more sympathetic than we could ever hope to be. He has a better sympathy. He has a better sympathy because he had a better obedience, The author tells us, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, the author's not trying to say that Christ learned how to obey, right? He was perfect. He was, he is God. He knew how to obey, but participating in obedience, being involved in obedience is a whole nother matter. That's what he's learning right here. He's learning what it was to be involved in obedience so that he could relate to us, so that he could appreciate where we've been, so we could be even more sympathetic. Yesterday, I took care of my daughter for about six hours solo, right? And this is the longest stretch we'd gone, just the two of us, right? I've taken care of her for a few hours here and there, just by myself, then that's, it's been great. But this was my first kind of extended stretch. This was a couple, like there's a couple times that she needs to be fed in that time, a couple different naps, right? There's six plus hours, and so I calmly explained this to her at the beginning of our time. And she's like, I don't know, Dad. She said, I don't know. We might need mom. And I said, I know. We do need mom. <laughs> but we can make it. And I know how to take care of her, right? Like, I know how on paper to take care of my daughter for six months. I, could, I know how on paper to take care of my daughter if I needed to forever. Like I know how to do it, but it's another matter, right? It's another level to actually experience it, right? To be in that moment, to be in that uh, involvement. It's a whole nother level. By the way, 
today, everyone needs to go home and call their parents and tell them that they love them and thank them for being alive because they took care of you for six hours at some point and it's insane, all right? But today, we know on some level, Christ knew how to be obedient. It wasn't a matter of knowing how to obey. He knew that, but he wanted to participate. He wanted to be involved in that obedience with us so that he could have a better sympathy. It's this reason that we don't need to be afraid to confess our sins to him. So many times we're afraid to approach the throne of the Lord. We're afraid to talk with the Lord or approach him or read our Bible. We don't really want to do that. We don't really want to sing that song. We don't want to listen to that thing in our car. Why? Because there's something within us. There's a guilt or a shame because there's a sin that we know is an issue. And we know it is. It's been there for a while. It just popped up. But we don't need to be afraid of that. We don't need to be afraid to confess those sins, to confess those temptations. Why? Because Christ has been there and beyond. He has a better sympathy. And what's so great is that he doesn't just hear us and nod his head and be like, yeah, that's really rough. He does something about it. It's not just his standing as priest. It's not just his sympathy. It's also the sacrifice. That's better. Speaking about the human priests, the author says, because of this, he, the human priest, is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. He says, if you've got a human priest or pastor or minister, whatever it is, the thing about that guy or lady or whatever, he or she has an issue on her own. She has, he has his own sins, to deal with. He has to offer sacrifice on his own behalf. So suddenly that sacrifice that he offers for you isn't quite the same. It's not quite as powerful. It's that moment uh, where you invite someone along to go to a concert, an event or whatever. And they're like, yeah, okay. And then you're like, oh, great. So can you drive? Right? Because you really just invited them because you needed a ride to get there. I had a buddy in college who was the expert at this, would make you just feel loved and appreciated, like he really wanted to spend time with you. And then he'd be like, oh yeah, so can you take me to this thing, right? We, he asked me one time, a freshman year, about one of the Spider-Man movies that just come out. He's like, hey, are you thinking about going? Like, I was thinking about getting people together to go. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm actually already going with uh, Susan, my girlfriend at the time, and my buddy and his girlfriend, the four of us are going to go. It's kind of a double day. He's like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll come too. And so then he rode with us, <laughs> sat in the very middle and ate some of my popcorn, which was the greatest sin that could never be forgiven. But he had this moment, right, where he kind of was like, yeah, hey, we should all do this together. But it was really because he didn't have a car and he wanted to ride to the theater. And we have those moments where, man, we need to actually just do something on our own. That's where the sacrifice comes from. We offer, oh, you, you want something from Starbucks? Right, why? Because we just want, we want to go to Starbucks and get a double, triple chocolate mochaccino, whatever. Like, we want that. And so we're like, oh, yeah, you should come too. That sacrifice, I mean, it's not as powerful. It's not as wonderful. Christ is different. This is where the humans come from. But Christ, he was perfect. He was without sin. That he had no need for his own sacrifice. And so his sacrifice, it's better than what we have to offer. He was being made perfect, and he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There he is again. 
I'm telling you, it's going to be really cool when we get there. What's he saying? He says it's more than just the fact that he was perfect and didn't have to offer his own sacrifice. His sacrifice is also better because it's eternal. To all who obey him. The wording right here uh, is not saying that there is some sort of action that's needed. It's not saying that you have to follow certain commands or whatever that is. This is merely a description of Christians. They were known as those who obey. Those who trust God is another way that they could have said this. Those who trust him. And it's eternal. Anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, anyone who trusts, puts their faith in that sacrifice, it lasts forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. That's the way it goes. And that's amazing, right? That the human priests, they have to offer these sacrifices over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. You would go yourself sometimes to the temple. Uh, the high priest once a year would have to go in on the day of atonement, offer up this one really big major sacrifice. Like this would happen over and over and over again. It'd be amazing for it to just be once for all, right? That, that's what you want. As I'm taking care of Charlotte for six and a half hours-ish, there were a lot of diaper changes. Many, many diaper changes. So many. So many. So many diaper changes. And it happens over and over and over and over again. It happened yesterday. It's going to happen today. It's just the way it is. Right? Stuff happens. You got to change it. That's just the way it goes. If I could just go in and change her once and she be forever clean, oh my gosh, I would... I would think about terrible, I would do almost anything for that. Like I, that would be, that would be amazing, right? That would be an incredible, incredible thing. If I was able to just go in once, once for all, just change and you are clean, go forth, poop no more. Like I would love that. Oh my gosh. I would give anything for that, for that. Oh my goodness. This is what Christ has done. He had this, we had this problem, this constant need for renewal, this constant need for sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. We had to avoid these things and we couldn't eat that stuff. We couldn't touch this thing and we couldn't do all these different things or all these rules and regulations. There was all this sacrifice that had to take place and yet Christ walked into that moment, into that situation and said, I will sacrifice myself. And when I do that, no one else ever needs to sacrifice anything ever again. Once for all, eternal salvation. We don't need to be afraid that we have to sacrifice things, do things to impress God. That fear is misplaced. So often we find ourselves feeling like, oh my gosh, I I need to avoid the Lord because of these things, because I didn't do these certain things, or I have to perform these tasks or go on these trips or say these words so that the Lord's favor could fall upon me. And that is foolish and that fear is misplaced. Christ's sacrifice was perfect. Christ's sacrifice was eternal for all who trust in him. So what we realize about this priest, what we realize from this passage is that we have a great high priest who's victorious over sin, over death, We have a high priest who offers us sympathy, who offers us strength, even in the midst of our problems, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our struggles. We don't have to fear sin. We don't have to fear death because of what Christ has done. 
And we don't have to fear God because of what Christ is doing. So as we sing a few more songs, as we enter into a little bit more worship, as we move out and go about our weeks taking tests or going to see people or going home or preparing for the rest of the semester of, of, of class or work, or whatever it is, as we move forward, as we hear this passage, I want us to really think through those fears, to really look inward and ask the Lord to show us where are we afraid to trust Christ? Are you afraid to trust Christ as your Savior, first and foremost? If so, please talk to me. Please talk to one of our leaders who will be in the back of this room as we sing. There's going to be a few people scattered around in the back who are there that will be praying for you. But they would love to hear specific requests or they would love to have a conversation to answer your questions. They'd love to meet up with you later in the week. Please come talk to us. Or maybe are you afraid that there are temptations? Are you afraid that there are sins that are keeping you from the Lord? Because again, it's misplaced. God has a perfect sympathy for you. Or are you afraid that you still have to earn God's favor in some way? Do you have that misplaced fear? Because Christ's sacrifice was once for all, forever. Let's go before the Lord. Let's ask him to show us where are those fears and beg him to remind us, to reveal to us how Christ is better than every single one of them. God, we, we thank you that you have overcome sin, that God, you've overcome death. Lord, we thank you that we have a great high priest who has a better standing, Lord, a better sympathy, God, who offered a better sacrifice than we could ever give. If you would, take a moment. Ask the Lord to just convict you right now. In other words, ask the Lord to, to bring to your mind where it is that you are failing to trust him. Where is it that you are failing to trust in Christ as your Savior? Or maybe ask him to show you where are you allowing sins and temptations? Where are you afraid that those things will hold you back from the Lord? Or ask him, where are you seeking to still sacrifice to earn God's favor? Ask him that right now. And if you would, ask the Lord to show you a time this week or to motivate you to carve out some time this week to, to really sit and, and think about this more. To not just sit and meditate and, and pray to him right now in this moment, but that there'd be a time tonight or tomorrow or, or every day this week or every other day this semester that you would stop Read through Hebrews, read through a gospel, read something or, or pray or, or sing to the Lord that you would be reminded that Christ is better than all these fears you have. That you'd be reminded that you have a, a priest who loves you. Ask the Lord to show you where can that time be this week? Where can you just stop and, and thank him for what he's done? Stop and, and remember the victory that's offered to you through Christ. Ask him that.